And today we will be covering another big section of Scripture, of course, trying to hit some highlights and some some interesting things along the way. I hope. We're going to start in First and Second Timothy, which is where we left off last week. So if you want to follow along not only on the piece of paper that Ty's handing out, and, but in your Bibles, go to First Timothy. First Timothy. That first box I'm going to draw something like this for me. I'll tell you why. But again, if you find something in the letter of 1 Timothy that really jumps out at you, that helps you remember you know, what the big idea of 1 Timothy is, or some important points from 1 Timothy, draw that instead. But for me, this is, this is something that jumps out for me because of the way the letter is structured. In 1 Timothy, you've got Paul writing to a young man named Tim- Timothy, excuse me, a younger man named Timothy. And Paul is giving Timothy a commission here, and he's saying you need to confront the leaders that are, that are not doing what they should be doing. It's part of what Timothy's going to do. And you also need to do what I've charged you to do and what the Holy Spirit has charged you to do. You need to continue on in your mission, in your work. And in this letter, there's about two to three, two, two big sections, and they're all connected by a poem about Jesus Christ throughout the letter. He writes, it may just be a small little poem, piece of prose, but it it seems to talk about the resurrected Jesus Christ three different times in this letter. And that's kind of what connects it for me. When I when I remember First Timothy, I remember Paul's letter to Timothy to do what I've charged you to do to confront these leaders, and he brings out three different times the resurrection of Jesus Christ in these little poems. And I'll I'll tell you where they are as we kind of go through the book here. He says, confront the leaders, he says don't waste time with these, you know, speculations on genealogies. And how many times do we get lost in speculations? I've gotten lost in speculations before. Sometimes they're fun, but in the end, what are they? They're speculations. And maybe we just need to get down to brass tacks. And Paul is saying, you know, stick to brass tacks and don't don't get lost in things that you can get lost in. But but stick to what's important here. Teach that things that, that, that go for unity, not that cause disruption, not that, not that cause people to pull apart, teach things that bring people together. Amen. The gospel should be a uniting message, not a dividing message. And Timothy needs to teach that uniting message. And that first poem is in 117. And listen to the, to the words that Paul uses here. And he kind of closes out that first section. First section excuse me. He says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a song that comes from that verse. It's a very beautiful song. But it's also a very beautiful piece of poetry. And that's one of the first things that Paul writes down there. That I need you to do this. And this is the God that you're serving. This King immortal, invisible. This resurrected Jesus Christ that has the power to save. 
When you go to chapters 2 and 3, he lists out some specific problems in there, doesn't he? He lists out, this is what's happening. And I also ask you to do this. I ask you to, ask you to pray. I ask you to, to combat this with prayer. He gives some lessons to the, to the women. Don't have fashion shows at church. Don't turn it into a fashion show. Don't worry about what you're wearing on the outside. It's the inside that counts. You know, when you look at the Bible, there's more about dressing up than there is dressing down. Don't dress up. Don't dress up. There, there's a reason for that because you don't want to try and say, I'm better than you because I've got more money in the bank. Or I'm better than you because I've got this or that. You need to remember what's important here. Not the external, but the internal. It doesn't mean that we come just completely trashy looking, obviously. But, but Paul is trying to get Timothy and the people there to realize what's really important here. It's not your social standing. It's your standing in Christ. It's who you have in Christ. And there he leads, and he ends up in 316, and there's that second poem. 316. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Another piece of poetry about the resurrected Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 4, 1 through 16, and 5, 1 through 16, and even into chapter 6, he starts talking about bad theology that's going on. This is some bad theology here. You've got to change this. It's not about this, this marriage, this food. 516, 1 through 16, he talks about care for the widows. 517 through 25, he talks about older men. Teach younger men. You know, do some mentoring, which is, which is great, isn't it? It's good to do that. I like to reach out to older men. They have so much wisdom, so much, so much to offer. But we don't tap that enough usually. Even in the Church of Christ, we don't tap that enough. Older women don't teach younger women as much as we should. and Older men don't teach younger men as much as we should. I'd put a call out to all the older men here. I'd like to learn from you. Just me personally. I'd like to learn from you. I'd like to know more about you. I'd like to hear your stories. Hear what happened. And, and hear what brought you about in your life of faith. I want to know. And Timothy is, is being told, you know, men need to teach men. Women teach women. Kind of share in this body. We're a body. We're, we're a fellowship. You need to share with each other. And maybe you can avoid some mistakes that other people made. Maybe you can grow a little farther. 6, 1 through 2, he talks about slaves and masters. And then he says, 6b through 17 and 18, you know, be rich in love. Don't care for earthly riches here. And the poem, the last poem he writes is in 6, 15 through 16. And it, and it picks up sort of in the middle because he's charging them in 13. But the poem really takes on on the, the, the poetic emphasis there in 15 and 16. I'm going to start in 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. There's that last poem that really sums up what Paul is saying here. This is, this is who you're charged to. This is who you're doing this for. And in this letter, you can go ahead and erase that time since they probably have that by now if they're drawing that. In that letter, the overall thing, I think, is giving a holistic view of the church. This is what the church looks like. This is what the church believes. And if this is what the church believes, then this is how the church should act. If you read Timothy and you think, well, that's what the church should believe, then, well, then that's how I act. He says, uh, this is how you should act. Let me give you a, a way to act here. 
And how the church is perceived in public is an important thing, isn't it? How many times has the church gotten a black black eye in the public? It shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like that. The, The church should not have a black eye in public. It should have a good standing among people, among its community. People should look to that that congregation and say, that's a group of people that care about people, that love people. They put God first. Even if they don't agree with us, they know we're good people. They know we're people who love God. That's some takeaways from 1 Timothy. What a church believes shapes how we behave. And that's very true. And how a church is perceived in public is extremely important. I think Paul is going to say that in a couple other letters too. But you go from 1 Timothy to... 2 Timothy, and here's my picture for 2 Timothy. It looks so much better in my mind. It looks practically perfect in my mind. Okay. This is the image that I get. When I read 2 Timothy, I'm thinking of this. That is, can, can anybody tell what that is at this point? <laughs> okay. It looks a lot better right here. Let me show it to you. You see it? Yeah, you, yeah, you can. Don't, don't. You can see that. This is Paul in jail. This is hands grabbing the bars, okay? Oh. I see it now, yes. All right. I see that horrible drawing now. It's the darkness behind it or the squiggly lines. You know, it's, it's that jail cell. Okay, this, this letter here is one of his last letters written. Waiting in jail. And as Paul is, is in jail, as he writes, he writes a couple of letters in jail. This is one of the ones he writes prison. There's two large sections here, and I think there's two conclusions in 2 Timothy. Timothy is still in Ephesus. He's still working. And Paul is writing to him from a a prison in Rome. What's interesting is uh, when you think about being encouraged by somebody, this is a man who's probably pretty quickly going to be going home. That's a heavy thought to to know that your your execution is coming, to know that I'm going to be leaving soon. How many times have you gone to somebody who, who knows they're going to be dying and you go to encourage them and what, what ends up happening? They encourage you. Ah, this happened many, many times with me when I go talk to people who are close to death and I leave thinking, man, I feel good. I feel so much better for having gone and talked to them. I'm encouraged. And Paul is writing this letter and he encourages Timothy as he's right there on the precipice of going home. He's still in the mode of encouraging I want to encourage you for the fight that is going to be continuing in your life because I've fought the fight. You keep fighting the fight. The first one, the first section here is from chapter 1 to chapter 2 through verse 13. And he, and he tells Timothy in that section, accept your calling. Accept what you have been called to do. And he, and he brings in his family and he says, I'm so thankful for your family, for your grandmother, your mother, for the upbringing that you had, for the information that they gave you, the, the, the faith that they instilled there. And he also brings out a very important point that I think is one of the takeaways from this book is the negative stigmas of being in prison, at least for Paul. Because look at verse 15. Let me, let me turn over there really quick. Verse 15 of chapter 1. 
after he's again reminded him to guard what has been treasured to you and trusted to you, he says, verse 15, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are are Phagellus and Hermogius. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he has often refreshed me and is not ashamed of my chains. Paul, one of... One of the big takeaways for me from Second Timothy is this, this idea of people are abandoning this Apostle Paul. This man who is strong in the faith, who is, a, who is a force to be reckoned with when it comes to spreading the gospel of Christ. But now he's in jail and people are saying, you know what, I don't know if I want to be connected with that. I'm not sure that that's a good, good, uh, good influence or good stigma. I don't want that stigma. That guy's in jail. And people are abandoning him. And maybe that looks bad to them. Maybe that looks bad. Maybe he's done something. Why are you in jail if you're, if you're so righteous, such a righteous person? Why are you in jail? And Paul is trying to say, you know, the, the stigma of jail is, is not what you think it is. That's one of the big takeaways here. And he goes from that to 2, 1 through 13 where he talks about the grace of Jesus. And the fact that, that following Jesus is sometimes going to end you up in here. It's going to end you up in jail or it's going to end you up into trouble because I'm following Christ I'm not going to always fall in line with what the world wants me to fall in line with. And he uses three big examples there. He uses the soldier, he uses the athlete, and the farmer to say that these are three types of people who serve something bigger than themselves. The athlete serves something bigger. The soldier is is serving something bigger. And the farmer, of course, something bigger. And I, too, am serving something bigger than myself. I may end up in jail, but that's not something to be ashamed of because I'm in jail for following Christ. I'm sacrificing for following Christ. And what that big section is, is a big call to faithfulness is really what it is. Call to faithfulness. Be faithful. You might be in jail. You might be locked up. But if it's for the cause of Christ, no worries. Don't worry about it. 2, 14 through 4, 5, this is that second section there. He deals with corrupt teachers again. There's a lot of bad teaching going on. There's a lot of things that need to be corrected. And, and the fact that, that some are spreading around that the resurrection's already happened, things have already happened, and, and Tim, he's instructing Timothy to keep faithful and entrust to faithful men. There in 2 2 is where he says that. Entrust to faithful men these things that you need to teach. And he says, keep teaching and keep teaching and entrust them to faithful men so that they can teach and you can pass it on down. It reminds them of the scripture's importance. And of the purpose. And that's where you get 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. One that I'm sure a lot of you can quote, right? 3, 16 and 17. This is the importance here. Because all scripture is what? Inspired or God-breathed. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate. Equipped for every good work. So that, what? Why is all this? This is why God's word is. This is what God's word is. It's profitable. It's God breathed so that you may be adequate. So that you may be equipped for every good work that God is calling you to do. And he leads all of that into the conclusion there in 4, 6 through 22. And that's where Paul is really getting down to the brass tacks about, I'm probably not making, this, making it out of, alive, out of alive on this one. I think he understands that. And he also says, you know, Bring, bring some books. I want you to come to me really quick. I want, to, I want to see you again. Bring some books. Bring my parchments. And watch out for this guy. Watch out for Alexander. He's done me a lot of harm. Watch out for that guy. 
Here I think, here I think you see that, that faithfulness, that call to faithfulness, the fact that imprisonment is not necessarily a bad thing. When it's a cause for Christ, it's a good thing. And what 2 Timothy really shows you is that Paul's life, that Paul's life in, in detail, the reality of a Christian struggle, this is the reality of the cause for Christ. Prison and hard times are not a sign of Jesus' absence. Just because you're in hard times, just because you have been put in jail, doesn't mean that Christ has abandoned you. No, you may be even closer to him at that point. We're called to suffer. And Paul is, is showing us that. I think it's that fulfillment of even Matthew chapter 5. Go ahead and erase that. Where he's talking about the Beatitudes, and he gets down to that part where, you know, they're going to persecute you. But why are they going to persecute you? Because you've been living this way. Because you've been looking like me. And they'll persecute you because of that. So the first letter there, Paul talks to Timothy and he, and he says this is that, that holistic view of the church. This is, this is what a church looks like. If they believe this, this is what they look like. This is how you are to conduct yourselves. And then he talks about the end of his life here in 2 Timothy, the, the, the closing of his life. And the fact that this struggle is real. It may end you up in jail. It may put you behind bars. Then you go to the letter Titus. Now this drawing, I hope, will be better. It's much easier for me to draw, so I'm sure it will be. All right, so far, what do we got? Pants. Very good. Excellent. Blue jeans. Even better. Blue jeans. <laughs> and now, we got what? Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> <laughs> liar, liar, pants on fire. And, and that, that sums up Titus for me. Or at least it, it, it helps me remember Titus because Titus, Paul has left Titus in a certain place. And you go over to Titus if you want to follow along there. And the place he's left him, he's in Crete. And Crete is notorious for liars. Notorious. In fact, the word creatso, to be a Cretan, meant in that culture, greedy, liar. That, that's what it was. That's who you were. That's, that's you know, that, that general description of a, of a Cretan, a Cretan. This is a liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. And this is the church that, that Titus is sent to. This is the place that Titus is sent to. And notice the, the, the emphasis here and, and what they're known for. Known for lying. And look at verse 2. Look at how Paul starts his letter to Titus. He reminds him that he's a bondservant of God. He introduces himself again. And then in verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. I don't think that lie there, I mean, obviously that's, that's a good line anywhere in the Bible, but I think it has special significance written to Titus, who is sitting in a place where you're known for lying. And the people having this, this culture around them and this Greek culture seeping into Christianity and having gods that competing with God and being a place where it's known for Zeus's, quote-unquote, Zeus's birth, this God who is not is a treacherous God, and they take pride in the fact that it's known for Zeus's birth. That's where he's born. You try to mix that with Christianity, what do you have? You have a God that lies. 
Yeah, but you, you come from a, from a, from a history of, of learning that God lies. These gods lie all the time. But this God, this God doesn't lie at all. Cannot lie. Cannot lie. Will not lie. It's not in his nature to lie. It's a complete opposite from what you've been born with and born into and, and come up with and come around. Even if you're a Jewish Christian, or I mean, if you're of Jewish background and have this background, you're a Jewish Cretan, because there are some Jewish people here who have been raised in this background. You're raised around gods that lie. And now Paul is saying, this God, this God doesn't lie. And why do you think he starts that off with, and then he goes right into Look, I know what kind of people you have there. I know you, you have treacherous people and, and people that lie. But when you're, when you're looking for older men here, what kind of men do you need to look for? What kind of men do you need to have that are, that are overseers? You need to have men that are not going to be the exact same as your normal Cretan. To appoint elders, verse 5. If any man be above reproach, having the husband of one wife. All of these things that, that, that would be the opposite of your typical Cretan man. Again, I'm lumping all Cretans into one group here, but that, that, is the, that is the culture in which they are. That is the culture, the accepted culture. But Paul is saying, you need to be opposite of culture. You need to be the exact opposite of what Crete is. You need to be people that are not liars. Zeus is a liar. God is not a liar. And now Titus is tasked to find these kinds of men and appoint elders that would stand out among the normal Cretan man. And they would stand out among family, among community, among faith, all of that stuff. Also, he's confronting corrupt leaders again, 1, 10 through 16. Jewish Cretans who say, you've got to have some of this and you've got to have some of that. Jewish law, yeah, you've got to have some of that too. Myths, verse 14, Jewish human commands. And the fact that they're really into it for the money in verse 11. They really want money. You can pull some of that out and even, even talk about today. Paul is saying, that's not, that's not who you are. Let me introduce you to the new household that you're supposed to be. And that's one of the sections that he does, the new family life. Starting in chapter 2, 1 through 15, he talks about the new family life. This is what your family should look like. This is what people of God should look like. In verse 5, what does he say? He says, you need to be sensible, talking to women there, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. The opposite here, the word of God being dishonored. We can dishonor God's word by not acting correctly, even at home. We can bring shame to God's word by calling ourselves Christian and then acting the opposite way. Verse 8, Likewise, young men in verse 6, he's talking to young men now, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach in verse 6, or verse 8, excuse me, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Again, how is this new household or this Christian household supposed to look? This is how you, you look, ladies. This is how you look, young men. This is what you look. You look the opposite of culture right now. Verse 10, again, opposite of culture. Bond slaves to be subject to their own masters, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Again, even down to these, this is how you act in the family of God. This is God's message. This is God's call to you. And that's Paul's picture of the new household. In fact, I think the message of Titus is the gospel needs to prove itself. The gospel will prove itself if acted on, if lived out. The gospel proves itself. But you need to prove it as Christians in your own home. You need to prove it in your own culture. You need to show it to everybody around you. 
You need to prove it. You need to live it out. And he's calling them to do that by what? Separating themselves and starting own, their own monastic island somewhere else. No. Sometimes that would be nice, wouldn't it? To be separate. To be away from all this crud. But he doesn't say that. He says, no, I want you to live within your community. But I want you to live above your community. I want you to live better. I want you to live like God wants you to live. Don't separate yourselves. Live within it and through it. And do it with godly principles. Verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2 are those godly principles. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to what? Deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now here's your, here's your new family. Here's the way it looks. This is the way the Cretan family used to look, but this is the way a Christian Cretan family looks. And that leads you right into chapter 3 where he talks about the new humanity. He goes from the new family, the new household, to the new humanity. And he talks about the ideal citizen. Who is the ideal citizen? It's a Christian. A Christian is the ideal citizen. Why? Because he loves God and he puts him first. And he puts other people first. That's a very countercultural thing, especially in Crete. Go ahead and erase that, tie. Especially in Crete. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to lie every chance I get. I'm going to take advantage of you. No, that's not how you live. That's not the new humanity. And in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul gives us another poem of his. And again, it's again talking about Jesus Christ. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, of whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by His grace, we might be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, not through a culture war, Paul says. You don't, you don't change the culture of Crete by a culture war. You don't change the culture of Crete by legislation. You change it by living the gospel in action. That's how you do it. You don't, you don't live like your old life. You live a brand new life. You're no longer known for lying. You're now known as men who are, who are honest, truthful, upright, and stay, all of this. And your women are known for that. Your, your young men are known for All of the people are known for that. That's this life in Crete. And I think that's partly the message of Titus. And now you go to Philemon. Philemon, very short little letter. One of the shortest. And for this, this is what I... He's got a hairy leg. That's what I'm writing. Because I think, or that's what I'm drawing for Philemon. Because obviously it's dealing with, number one, a runaway slave, isn't it? And number two, there's another, there's another person that's in bondage. And there's another person that I, that, I, that I imagine in bonds in this letter as well. But Paul converts this Philemon. Paul himself converts Philemon, 
And Philemon and Epaphras start a church in Colossia. Colossians, excuse me. You go over to Colossians 1.17 and see that. You can go to um, verses 1 and 2 here. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, or Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archcrispus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. There's a, there's a congregation that meets in their house, and Onesimus is a slave in that house. Philemon must be a, a pretty well-off person. He's got slaves. But for whatever reason, whatever happens, and it might be theft because some of it alludes to you know, he might owe you some things here. And that, that gets into the, to the later part of that letter. But it might be theft, but for whatever reason, Onesimus decides to run away. Onesimus takes off and runs away from Philemon. And he runs away when he's a Christian or not a Christian. Not a Christian. He runs away not a Christian. But he meets up with Paul, doesn't he? And Paul does what Paul does. <laughs> and shares the gospel with Onesimus. Obviously, Onesimus had some exposure to the gospel because Philemon, he's in Philemon's house, so he, he's probably had exposure to it, but Paul finishes whatever work has started, and he becomes a brother in Christ. It's interesting there. He opens that letter, verses 1 through 7, and he talks about what his relationship with, with, with Philemon Verse 7, I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. He, verse 6, he reminds them of that fellowship, that koinonia. He says that a couple times in this letter, the koinonia that he has with him and the koinonia that, that is bigger and beyond just the two of them. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. He's heard about the love and they've heard about the love for all the saints there in verse 5. And he always thanks God for him there in verse 4. He knows him well. He has a good relationship with him. He knows Philemon is a good, strong Christian brother. And Paul is going to ask him to do something. Here's the interesting part that Paul asks him to do. Verse 8, he says, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. But... For love's sake, I appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And there's my double image for me. I see this as Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave, but Paul is also a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And if you really think of it, Philemon needs to be a prisoner for Christ Jesus too. I appeal to you, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus who formerly was useless to you, but is now useful both to you and me. You probably know this already, but do you see Paul's play on words there in verse 11? Onesimus, the name, means useful. And Paul says this useful person was once useless to you. But now he's useful his, whole, his, his very name, Paul is using as a, as a, as a, as a bit of, of wordplay here. He's formerly useless, but he's now useful to both you and me. Because he's more than just a prisoner. He's now a brother in Christ. Amen. You, me, and him now have the same standing in Christ. And I have sent him back to you in, pri in person. That is sending my very heart. 
And, and as Onesimus walks back to Philemon, Philemon could do kind of what he wanted. I mean, he's the owner of this man. Maybe he wants to throw him in jail. Maybe he wants to, to, to exact revenge. But what is Paul saying? He's saying, I know you're not going to do that. I know you're not going to do that because of who you are, what you believe, and whose you are. And I know you're not going to do that because now the man that I'm sending back to you is also a brother in Christ. And I'm sending not just him, but I'm sending my heart back to you. I'm sending me back to you. And he does pull the card of, hey, you, you could owe me. You could owe me. Verse 19, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. This is after he says, you know, if Onesimus has wronged you in any way, if he owes you some money, I'll pay it back. I'll take care of his debt. Onesimus can't take care of his debt. I'll do it for him. Now, now what's interesting here with this letter, the, the big picture in this letter for me is that Paul nowhere here, you won't see him mention the death, the burial of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing in there about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a very personal letter to a person that he knows. It's short. It's sweet. But although he doesn't ever mention the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, notice the imagery that he uses. Who does Paul put in the middle here between Philemon and Onesimus? Yes, but he puts himself in the middle. He says... He doesn't, he doesn't actually say, remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, brother. He says, let me show you the death, the burial, and the resurrection in action. Let me show you me standing in the middle here for Onesimus and saying, I know that man can't repay his debt, so let me do it for you. Let me repay his debt. Let me be the one that bridges the gap between you and him. So he doesn't mention him, but he actually shows it, the gospel in action here in Philemon. He shows it in person. He shows them what it really looks like to live the gospel in action and say, I'll stand in between you. I'll demonstrate this. He talks about the reconciliation. That's that big part of reconciliation. I'll reconcile him back to you because God has reconciled him to himself. Let him be reconciled back to you. And let him have that koinonia, that fellowship with you that we enjoy in Christ. So the big message for me in this is that death, that burial, go ahead, Ty, and resurrection that Paul shows in action in Philemon. Okay, now this one is a big book. This is Hebrews. This is huge, and it's, I'm going to break it up into several sections here. So there's, I'm going to draw a couple things for each section. I'll try to remember to, to write down the chapters that I'm covering here, too. Because the first one I'm going to cover is 1 through 2. 1 through 2, and I'm going to draw this. I think in 1 and through 2, 1 through 2, the, the Hebrew writer talks about angels, and he talks about the Torah. He talks about the Word of God. And he compares Jesus to angels, and he's, he's comparing these things. The, the biggest takeaway from... Well, let me put that up here. Or should I do it? Yeah, forget it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to. I'm going to save it for later. Because the biggest takeaway I think sums up all those chapters. No, forget it. I'll do it now. Can I see that for a second? I'm going to redo that just a little, just so I have some room up here. One through two. Jesus. 
is superior. I think my big takeaway from the book of Hebrews all over, over and over again, here you go, thank you, is that Jesus is superior. And I think in each of these sections you see the Hebrew writer saying Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior. Over and over all of these things that he compares Jesus to here. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, part of the Jewish tradition was that the Torah was given to Moses by angels. And Jesus, or the Hebrew writer is saying that if you paid attention to that word, then how much more should you pay attention to this word? If you paid close attention to that, Jesus is superior in his message and in his person from angels. He's superior in, in the message from the Torah. He's superior. He's God's message, period. In fact, in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews, he starts off the letter by saying, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in son. There's no his there. It's just in son. He's, he's spoken to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is that exegesis of God. If you want God explained, that's Jesus. If you want to know what God is, that you look at Jesus. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. How much more should you pay attention to the one who is superior? If you paid attention to this message, you better pay attention to this message. That's one and two of Hebrews. Sections three and four. I drew this here for me. Yes, tabernacle. Tabernacle. Talking about Moses and the prophets and the promised land there in 3 through 4. Moses leads the people and and there's the tabernacle, but Jesus also leads the people. And he's the builder of all creation. He's the true tabernacle. Israel rebelled. Don't you rebel. He again contrasts the old and and now. He's saying, "If, if this was important, this is important. If they rebelled, don't you rebel. Because look at what happened when they rebelled. Don't rebel and lose the promised land. Jesus is superior. He's superior to Moses. He's superior in his leading. He's superior in his teaching. He's superior in the tabernacle. Could you erase those, those two for me, Ty? So you go from 1, 2, and 3, and 4, and then you go to chapters 5 through 7. And 5, no, not, okay, forget it. Don't worry about it. 5 through 7. Five through seven. I drew this. Priest, yes. Priest and Melchizedek, yes. Five through seven. Priest and Melchizedek. Again, the Hebrew writer contrasts the old and the new talks about the priests versus Jesus. You know, there's one Jesus, but there's many priests. They're human priests. They, they're fallible, but Jesus is infallible. He's perfect versus imperfect. There's many sacrifices versus one sacrifice. 
Jesus is superior in every single category, once again. Jesus is what you needed. Jesus is, is better than the Aaronic priesthood. And Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek. No beginning, no end. He's not going to end. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available. He's always ready and willing. He's superior in every way. But if you reject Jesus like you rejected these, then what hope do you have? You don't have any hope. You don't have any hope if you reject the eternally available priest, the eternally available sacrifice. You don't have any hope. Go ahead and erase that for me, Ty. So from 5 through 7, now we hit chapters 8 through 10. And in 8 through 10, he's going to talk about sacrifice and covenants. Sacrifices and covenants. And for that, I just drew kind of what I thought, the, just a little image to make me remember the, the altar with the offerings on it. Sacrifice and covenant. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifices. All of these things were offered all the time, all the time, continually. But they didn't rise to the level that Jesus' sacrifice rises. His blood is what is needed to, sacrifice, or to, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And one of the amazing things there in chapter 9, when it goes on and over, over the, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus and the times that he's appeared and all of these things, it talks about that sacrifice that is made once for all. Once for all. Never ever to be done again. Never ever. And that's, in fact, that's what that, that word means. It means it's never going to be done again. It's not going to happen again. It's once for all, period. The sacrifice is better. So my message to you as, as people of the, of the reading the Hebrews is if you thought these sacrifices were good, don't turn your back on this sacrifice. Because if this sacrifice you turn your back on, what else is there to fall back on? There's nothing there to save you. If this sacrifice you're going to turn your back on, don't walk away from it because nothing else exists to save you. Now, those sections there, I think all lead up to 11 to the end of the, of the book. 11 through 13 is now, the Hebrew writer has told you over and over again, Jesus is superior. He's superior to angels, the Torah, the sacrifices, the priest, Melchizedek, all of these things. He's, he's superior to everything in every way that you can possibly think of. And now, what does he do? He turns around and he says, look at all these people, the, the household of faith in chapter 11. This household of faith that has followed God's word, who have, has listened to God's word. And because of that, 10.39, excuse me, 10.36, go back to 10.35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet in a little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he is not shrinking back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And then he launches into the great chapter of faith. And he talks about those that have lived their life through faith. And he gets to verse 40 of chapter 11. He says, because God has proved, provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. 
So he's gone through the Old Testament and he showed you all of this. And again, he's comparing and contrasting this again. And he's saying, now look at what we have. Better covenant, better promises. And he gets to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, because of everything I wrote before, because of all the superior points that I pointed out about Jesus, now go live it. Go do this. Go live this, this life. We have such great a cloud of witness surrounding us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now there is your charge to live that life. He goes from all of that comparing and contrasting to now you do it. Now live this life. Which leads us to the last book. Oh, I'm, did, did I make that clear with all the, the... I don't think I made that clear with all the dots on your page either. Because it, I'll, I'll show you the... Well, that, that's the problem. I did, in mine, I didn't shrink it to the square. That's the problem. This was First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, and then the last two were James. I put Hebrews in three different things, so I'm sorry I didn't explain that to you. But if you, it doesn't matter. I mean, shoot, you can do it however you want. <laughs> but I just, I just spread three, you know, with the, the three categories. You had the the one in chapters one and two. I put in one box, and let's see. Chapter 1 and 2, plus the introduction I put in one box, and then chapter 3 through 4, 5 through 7, 8 through 10 in another box, and then the 11 through 13 in the third box. So, But that's, that's entirely up to you, however you want to do that. You could shove it all in one box. doesn't matter. Could you erase that for me, Ty? James, I broke up into two again. Just so you, yeah, just so we're on the same page now. Two boxes. And in James, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And I always, yeah, erase all of that, please. Full of, full of practical and, and, and almost immediately applicable lessons. You could just take them right out and just, just live them right away. Which is, I don't remember who I heard it from, and I don't remember if they heard it from somebody else. But I've always remembered, sorry, I've always remembered uh, what they said. It was a gospel That was lived out in shoe leather. You know? It's something you could just slip on your feet right now and just walk walk in. It's, it's simple. It's easy to understand for the most part. And it's just immediately applicable. And that's, that's, that's the image I always have when I think of James. It's something you could just slip on and walk right out your door and immediately put into practice. In fact, it's so recognizable. I think most of you could probably... Because it's filled with one little, little, whole bunch of one-liners, isn't it? Yeah. I'm going to give you a couple. I want to see if you guys can, can finish them. Consider it all... Okay. Yeah. All right. Let not many of you become teachers. <laughs> okay, how about this? Go in peace, be... Be warmed, be filled. 
Okay, this is not working out as well as I thought it would. <laughs> I'm probably not giving you enough of the scripture. You, you know them. Well, as soon as we say them, we know them, right? Don't draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You are just a vapor. Here's here today, gone tomorrow. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's full of these one-liners that are just beautiful. In our, in our again, you could put these one-liners into practice. The body of the book is found in chapters two through five, and I think the beauty of the book is found in chapter one, that kind of introduces two through five. When you look at chapter one, you can see the way two through five is broken down. But I want to show you some things in two through five just so you can see them, at least the way I have them broken down. Now, here's my first box, okay, since I didn't do it last time. Two, one through three, talks about favoritism versus love. Favoritism versus love. And two, 14 through 16, let me get my book again. 214, or not 16, 26. He talks about genuine faith. And then you've got some kind of sections. You've got a word section. And that's 3, 1 through 12. 4, 11 through 12. And 5, 12. And here he talks about the tongue, here he talks about condemning others, and here he talks about distorting the truth. He talks about your words. They have a very big significance. And again, that's all practical advice, isn't it? The words can hurt. Tongues can, can really hurt people. Then you've got another section that I like to see, I like to call it the wealth section here. And that's 4, 13 through 17. And 5, 1 through 6. And in those two sections, he talks about the arrogance of wealth here, and he talks about the dangers of wealth here, and he instructs rich people. And he talks about, you know, this stuff is, is not going to be around forever. It's going to rust. It's, it's going to go away. What's going to be around forever is, is you. But you're like a vapor. Your soul is going to be around forever. I'm, I need you to erase that again, Ty. Sorry. If you don't have that and you actually want that, I'll give it to you later. If you don't have it now, we can sit down. I can show you. You can copy it straight from my book if you want it. Um, but that's that first part of James. And then in contrast to the wealth section, chapter 5, 7 through 11. Oops, through, through 11. It contrasts the wealth. It's the opposite of that. Contrasts it. In 5, 13 through 18, he talks about a faith-filled man. Prayer. 5, 19 through 20, he talks about restoring others. And then in 3, 13 to 18... He talks about true versus false wisdom. And then in 4, 1 through 10, 
talks about a divided... Ugh. Hmm? Heart. In all of these things, I think you see the, the, the beginnings of in chapter 1. But it's, it's full of all these little vignettes of, of life lessons, all these little one-liners that you can take and immediately put into practice. I want to show you the, the chapter 1 there. He sums up that entire book. He says in verses 2 through 4, I know life is hard. But those are good things because it produces endurance, because it produces character, and because that will make you perfect and complete. And that perfect, that complete, that teleos, that, that mature is what he's talking about. It will make you mature. It will mature you in Christ. He uses that word seven times in the book of James. I'm going to make, it's going to make you mature. It's going to mature you. It's a maturing book versus being fractured. And I think that's how he's, he's viewing these people. He's saying you can either be teleos, you can be mature, you can be complete and whole, or you can be a fractured person in the world. You can be fractured all over the place, or you can be teleos, you can be mature, you can be complete. He goes down through in verses 9 through 11, or 2 through 5, he says, if you need wisdom, what do you do? You ask. All of these problems that you're having, all of these things that, that the rest of the book talks about, you might be going through it, and what do you do? You don't just, just say, oh, there's nothing I can do. You sit down and you pray to God and you ask for wisdom for the problem that is happening, and God will give you wisdom. Verses 9 through 11, poverty. It can force you to trust in God alone. It's a good thing. It can put you in the place where you're going to be totally dependent on Christ, and that's where he wants you, to be totally committed on Christ. Verses 12 through 18, don't accuse God when things are going bad. He's not going to throw you the bad things. But be, faith, be a person full of faith. God is generous. He gives. He gives a new birth through Jesus. And you can face all the things that are coming. And you'll be stronger on the other end for it. In verses 19 through 27 where he talks about don't just listen to the word, but be doers of that word. You've got to be a doer. You've got to put it into practice. Otherwise, all of these little things are not going to do you a bit of good. But you also can't be angry with God. I think that's what he's really saying there in verse uh, 19. And not 19, I'm sorry. Yes, 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I think he's talking about their spiritual reception there. Be ready to listen to God. Don't be angry when God says, this is not what I want from you. I want you to change. Don't be angry when the, when the word says, no, that's not what you need to be doing. You need to be spiritually receptive to God and be ready to listen and be quick to listen. Be slow to speak and don't get angry because God wants the best for you. Ty, would you mind erasing that for me? The whole thing. Every little bit. I want to wrap this up for you here. In this way here, I tried to, from start to finish here, let me write it out the way I've got it here and then I'll, I'll walk you through it.
Okay. All these books that we've covered this morning, very briefly covered this morning. Hebrews. We start off with the fact that Jesus is the ultimate and the final communication from God. Ultimate and final. Ultimate and final communication from God. This is it. If we reject Jesus, what hope do we have? Hebrew writer says that Jesus is superior in absolutely every way, shape, and form. If you turn your back on him, there's nothing left. There's nothing left. There's no sacrifice left. Jesus is the ultimate and final communication from God. And then you go to Philemon here. It leads you to Philemon because in Philemon, what did we see? We saw the gospel in action. Not only did we see an example from Paul himself in real life of the gospel in action and putting himself in the middle between Philemon and Onesimus and saying, I'll pay for the man who can't pay for himself. But he's reflecting the ultimate gospel, which is Jesus putting himself in our place and saying, I'll pay for them what they can't pay for themselves. Hebrews is the final communication of God. Jesus is that final communication and the exegesis of God. And that exegesis of God came down and showed us what the gospel looks like in action in human flesh died on the cross for our sins. Paul and Philemon shows us the same thing. But then you go to Titus, and because we've heard the communication from God, and because we put the gospel in action, now you go to Titus, and Titus is that gospel lived out in community. In real life, in real time, in a world that is hostile to Christians, in a world that is opposite of Christians, you see in Titus a picture of what the Christian person, the Christian family, should look like in community. Not called to take yourselves away from community, but to live in it, to live above it, to live through it, through the gospel that you are showing to those people in that community. And as you're living it out in that community, James is that practical message, that practical, applicable message that is easily put into practice. I mean, obviously, they're, they're, it's, it's hard to be, be on point every time, right? But when you look at James, man, there's some practical ideas. There's some practical ways to live the gospel. When people come and say, I'm hungry, you don't just say, hey, I'm praying for you. What do you do? You feed them. You give them some food. Practical, applicable, do it. That's that gospel that's lived out in community. Titus, it shows you this, this new family and living in a community that is hostile. James shows you this is what it, what it looks like to live the gospel out in shoe leather. This is what it looks like to wake up in the morning and put your gospel shoes on and walk out there and live it. And then you go to 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, that's where Paul is saying, if you live all of this, if you live all of this stuff, if you live the, these, these beatitudes, just like Jesus said, if you do this, they're going to hate you because they hated me. It's okay to be hated. It's okay to be persecuted. It's okay to be put in jail. But why? Because we're living this out. Not because we are, we are people who actually epitomize what a Cretan looks like, but because we are people who live above that. And we live the gospel, and the, the world is hostile to the gospel. Is the world as hostile, hostile to the gospel today as it was then? I, think, I don't think man has changed much. The way we persecute each other has changed a little bit. But man himself hates. Yes. Yeah, second Timothy, yes. It's, it's okay to be hated. 
It's, it's okay to go to jail for the cause of Christ. And if you do, that's not the, sh- the sign that, that Jesus is absent from your life. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's not the sign that Jesus isn't working because we actually come under hard times and are persecuted. Jesus is working. Jesus is with us. He will be with us in the prisons. He will be with us at home. He'll be with us everywhere. Which leads you back to 1 Timothy, which says to me, what a church believes is how a church lives. Or a person. What we believe is how we live. Do we live, do we live like we believe this? Do we live like we believe it's okay to be in trouble for the cause of Christ? Do we live like people who say, yeah, I'm going to put my gospel shoes on this morning and live this gospel out? I'm going to live it in a community that may be hostile to me, may, may accept lying and cheating and stealing, but I'm not going to do that because I've been called to something higher. I'm going to show them the gospel in action when that, when every, everywhere that's possible. And I'm going to remind myself and others that Jesus is that final and ultimate communication from God. In that section, I know that's, that's moving books around a little, but as I went through them and, and you see sort of, or I see sort of this, this big picture of them, I see that as my big picture from this section here. What a church lives, what a church believes is what a church lives. What you believe is what you live. Do you believe this gospel? Do you believe that Jesus is that final communication from God? Do you believe that He is the one that will save you from your sins? If you do, how do you live it? Have you obeyed it? Have you obeyed that gospel? Have you been washed in the blood? If you haven't been washed in the blood, then you're still dead in your sins. And you need that blood to save you from your sins. To wash you clean and whole. To save you from the sin that will send you to hell. Acts 2.38, Paul says, or Peter says, you mean, after they've finally figured out that yes, Jesus is that final communication from God and we put Him on the cross, what do we do? Repent and each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. In the name of Jesus Christ. Hmm? I'm sorry, I thought you said something. Oh, no. Were you finishing the sentence for me? Repent. Yes. That's another one where we've, we've finished each other's sentences, isn't it? Repent and let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. This promise is for you, for all who are far off. Eventually, it's covering you. All who are far off. As many as the Lord God will call to Himself. That's, that's us. That's us today. He will wash you of your sins. He will put His Spirit in you. And you will rise to that new life in Christ. Believing that God, Jesus is that ultimate exegesis of God. Do you believe that? Do you live that? If you don't, change that this morning. Live it this morning. If you don't believe, or if you do believe, and you haven't been immersed in Him, do that this morning. Have those sins washed away and walk in that new life in Christ. Do that today as we stand and as we sing.